Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, we're going more. A good game of football, a good punch and a good fish I am a football fan. You listening in right now are also a football fan. I'm a daughter, a sister, an aunt, a cousin, a friend. Now think of all the labels that describe you. Can you imagine tagging on public disorder threat? Well, when you attend a football match in the UK, that is what you are primarily seen as. It is the ugly side of the beautiful game. A public disorder threat. This is what officers face at football matches every week. Fueled by prejudices and ignoring the evidence, football policing in this country is not rooted in human rights. For football fans, we're still stuck in that view that fans are potentially uh, a problem of disorder, a problem of risk and a threat and of violence. There are some local forces that are trying to be progressive. There are projects like Enable, supported by the English Football League, which is aiming to remedy this great ill. Football policing has rarely been explored in depth in the media, and so hasn't been challenged enough to change. Their preferred narrative is the perpetuation of the story about the football fan being a menace. They prefer the stories of the mass disorder. Why can you or I go to a music concert or the cricket, or to the rugby, and not be considered a public disorder threat. Why always football? There might be a subconscious feeling that these are football fans, no one really gives too much of a shit about them. If something goes wrong, it's not going to be on the front page of The Guardian. Do you know about the UK Football Policing Unit? Do you know how easy it is to be hit with a football banning order? Why can't you drink in view of the pitch at stadiums? Why hasn't safe standing come in yet? It may take a death of a football fan or somebody involved around the game, at a game or or, or in that sort of environment for the key stakeholders in this to finally realise that change is needed in the way that we police football in the UK. In this episode, we'll be getting an education on all of the above and an understanding of why we need to force national change in UK football policing, as we hear from the foremost experts on this matter. Welcome to Between the Lines. 
My name's Dr. Jeff Pearson. I'm a senior lecturer in law at the University of Manchester, um, and I'm an expert on football crowd law and policing um, and the impact of human rights upon um, football crowd management. And I've been doing research into policing and legal responses to football crowd disorder since the mid-1990s. Jeff, I think we need to start off by setting the scene of why football is treated so differently to other mass gatherings. Can you take us back to when attending the game started being viewed as a problem of public disorder? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's difficult looking back historically to know exactly when the issue of football crowd behaviour started to be identified as a problem. Um, it's probably somewhere in the mid to late 1950s, actually, um, and related to the, the, the baby boomers and um, the fact that people started having weekends and that the transport network started to, to improve and we started to get fans travelling to away matches as well as attending home matches. Um, and, of course, football stadiums and the police forces were, were simply not ready for that. Um, and we started having large numbers of young men um, and teenagers rocking up to football stadiums in the, the, the late 50s and, and early 60s. Um, and there was disorder. There was no segregation at grounds. There were, there were, there were no um, policies about football policing and, or guidance about how best to engage in football policing. And, and very quickly, disorder occurred. Policing tended to be reactive. Um, and by the late 1960s and into the 1970s, mass disorder at and around football matches was a common thing. Charlton were playing Millwall's traditional enemy, Tottenham. Five minutes into the game, this happened. The papers called it a terrace rampage. It was caused by a dozen or so of Millwall's nutters charging 2,000 Tottenham fans. And there were a few reports into this, and the responses generally were that this is an issue of crowd control. We have to, in some ways, control and segregate um, in order to try and stop disorder and violence taking place at matches. And that's what the legal responses started to be. So... Um, segregation was was introduced and that was then supported by um, the Safety at Sports Grounds Act in the mid-1970s, which essentially gave, amongst many other things, the police more control over how football grounds were set up. Um, and then in the 1980s, following a number of major incidents of disorder, um, 39 fatalities at the, um, at the Heysel Stadium in Brussels, for example. Uh, there was also mass disorder on the pitch in 1985 at uh, Luton Millwall and at Birmingham Leeds. As a result of this, there was a, the first bit of really panic legislation which was introduced, which was the Sporting Events Control of Alcohol Act. Look at these angry scenes on the terraces. This is the end of a stirring cup final. But now it has cascaded into violence, the kind of violence we didn't think would happen and didn't want to happen. This was based on legislation in Scotland that had been introduced in 1980, where particularly old firm games had a problem with fans using empty beer cans and bottles as missiles. While this wasn't a problem in England, 
the government wanted to be seen as proactive and opted to follow suit. The law went through Parliament in a single day and was rolled out across England with significant consequences. It meant you could no longer drink alcohol within sight of the pitch at football matches. This really set the tone for uh, a host of different legislative responses to football, which haven't really been thought out um, and which sometimes can be counterproductive to public order when actually it was meant to be there to try and improve the situation. Okay, so we had rushed law, panicked law, law not based on any research or evidence back then, which is still in effect decades later, despite the entire match-going experience changing? Yeah, that's correct. There's been, I mean, this is is a problem generally with criminal law, is that it's very easy um, with our legal system to introduce new laws, um, but actually it's very, very difficult politically for governments to remove those laws when they're no longer needed. And if you look on the statute book more generally, you will see criminal laws that are ancient, um, you know, that are completely irrelevant to, to, to modern society. And it's no surprise that we also see that in in football and the fear is that somehow if you remove these laws things will go back to how they used to be but that completely misunderstands why things changed in football they didn't change because of bad laws like the sporting events control of alcohol act the reductions we had in football disorder in this country are a result of a number of different factors that all took place at the same time and actually english football really got lucky because none of these factors on their own could have got the situation under control but of course we had we had a change in policing focus so we moved from mass um, policing that dealt with all football fans as potential hooligans onto more intelligence-based policing, um, which started to differentiate fans. That's the first thing that happened. Secondly, that was supported by legal changes in terms of football banning orders on conviction. So if you were convicted of a violent offence at football, you could now be banned from matches. That was a that was a sensible move. And along with the development of intelligence-led policing, those two factors work together. Um, and then finally, of course, you have the changes to uh, infrastructure at football stadiums, which were a result not of hooliganism, but of um, the disaster at Hillsborough and the recommendations of the Taylor Report, combined with the birth of Sky TV and the Premier League. And all these things came together so that suddenly our stadiums were improved, they were redesigned, we had closed circuit television at the same time as we've got banning orders and means of enforcing these orders. A whole new ball game, Ford Super Sunday. Exclusively live from the city ground, Nottingham Forest versus Liverpool, in association with Fosters. And all of this together made the change, and that change was towards the, you know, a time period difficult to be exactly sure, but somewhere in the region between 1988 through to the mid-1990s. That was when the change happened. Um, Sporting Events Control of Alcohol Act was completely irrelevant to that change. So we have a situation where we have old law, we have bad law, we have law that makes the problem worse 
and law that didn't even work at the time in the 1980s um, and certainly doesn't work now. We'll come back to the Control of Alcohol Act later. Let's get a quick history lesson on the managing of crowds in general and what forced the change in protest policing from Owen West, a retired chief superintendent. He's a man who is very well placed to school us about this. When I retired, I was the operational lead for football uh, in the force. I've co-authored three academic papers now in relation to policing of football crowds uh, and security issues. I'm uh, a member of the Enable team, which travels up and down the UK and internationally, examining and evaluating the way the police forces work with clubs to successfully deliver safe environments for crowds to come together for football. Just for a moment, let me take you outside of football because actually we need to to row back quite some considerable distance here because we need to examine the the view that the police have about crowds in general. And and crowds tend to be viewed by the police as uh, something to be controlled, something that is inherently a risk and a danger. And that comes from what the scientists call classic crowd theory. And it goes back to a chap all the way back to 1895, believe it or not, who wrote a book uh, called The Crowd. He was a man called Gustave Le Bon, and he wrote a book about the crowd. And uh, what he says in there is that essentially, and obviously he's writing in his time, he says that crowds are mad, bad, dangerous to know, and if you don't control them, then there will be anarchy on the streets. Now, unfortunately, that classic crowd theory has held strong in the view of the police and the view of states up and down um, the world, actually, for some considerable time. And it's only in the last 30, 40 years that that scientific basis, in terms of how crowds are viewed, has been debunked. And where this really started to get traction in the UK was the tragic and the awful death, the police killing of Ian Tomlinson. Mr Tomlinson was a paper seller in London at the 2009 G20 um, uh, events in uh, in the capital. He wasn't involved in protest, he was a bystander. And uh, people listening to this may well have seen the footage and the image of Mr Tomlinson being struck in the leg with a baton by the police, pushed to the ground, and tragically Mr Tomlinson died um, a little while later. It was a violent, forceful shove which a jury believes cost Ian Tomlinson his life. After a month of evidence, but just four hours of deliberation, they found that PC Simon Harwood had used excessive and unreasonable force in hitting the 47-year-old. He had, the jury said, been unlawfully killed. Quite rightly, there was a national outcry. And what that meant was, when the police watchdog, uh, the police inspectorate, commissioned a huge report, and one of the things that's in there, one of the really important things that's in there is Chapter 4. And chapter four talks about the science of how to deal with crowds. And it debunks all of that Gustave Le Bon classic crowd theory type uh, thinking. And it talks about the importance of legitimacy, of dialogue, of problem solving and engaging with whoever the crowd happens to be. Now, unfortunately, tragically, it took the death of Mr Tomlinson for the police in the UK to wake up to this new science around crowds and crowd policing. And so in, in any protest now, 
there will be a completely different mindset around how to deal with protest. You will see liaison officers in there. You will see uh, a sort of policy of no surprises. You will see much greater partnership working where that's possible between the police and the organisers. Where football comes into this is that the policing authorities in the UK have yet to apply those same standards that are human rights compliant, that are right up to date in terms of the science of crowd uh, psychology, that has yet to be applied to the policing of uh, football crowds. And so we have this strange position whereby protests are seen uh, as an event, a public safety event where uh, protesters need to be engaged and work with and there needs to be lots of communication and dialogue. Yet for football fans, we're still stuck in that view that fans are potentially uh, a problem of disorder, a problem of risk and of threat and of violence. And the work that uh, I and some of colleagues have been doing around uh, Project Enable is to try and flip that mindset to effectively say to police uh, commanders, a crowd is a crowd is a crowd. And if you are applying the latest science and the latest problem-solving techniques around a protest, you ought to be doing exactly the same around football fans because their human rights and their legality to express themselves, to come together, uh, to sing, to chant, to uh, come into uh, a place and enjoy themselves, apply equally across both of those scenarios. So, why isn't this applied in football yet? We ask someone who has been on the front line of this issue. My name is Amanda Jacks and I'm the caseworker for the Football Supporters Association. I have various different strands to my role, but I think it's best summarised to say that I'm here to support any football supporter that might find themselves in trouble at a football match or who might or who may have reason to complain about policing or stewarding on a match day. And I also do a fair amount of work with the police to ensure better policing at football. And whilst I'm not arrogant enough to take full credit for that, I'd like to think I've played a small role in the improvements that we've seen in the last five years or so. Amanda, why haven't we seen football treated in the same manner as any other event with regards to policing yet? I think, I mean, first of all, as you allude to, yes, that there is some very good, very progressive policing out there, which is fantastic. And as I said in, in my quote for your independent piece, um, you know, lo, lo, in various localities, there is some really, really good work going on, but that isn't national. Why isn't it national? Because in my very humble opinion. I think the appetite isn't there and more more importantly, the incentive isn't there. And again, this, this sort of goes back to the question about the media. We all see footage of protests on the news. There's lots of protests. Some of them are policed well, some of them not so well. And obviously we had that horrendous incident with Ian Tomlinson back in, I think, 2010, um, and his death was really the catalyst for change within protest policing. It had to happen. You know, everybody was up in arms about it, civil libertarians, newspaper columnists, that there was a generally held view that there needs to be a widespread change in how protest is policing, sorry, how protest is policed, and that happened. With football, the, the incentive isn't there, 
And is the incentive not there because subconsciously perhaps there's a feeling among the police? Um, and again, you know, you say the police, there's thousands of police officers out there and a lot of them are really good at policing football. So it's a very broad term um, that perhaps shouldn't be used in such a sweeping way. But I, I think definitely there might be a subconscious feeling that these are football fans. No one really gives too much of a shit about them. Um, if something goes wrong, it's not going to be on the front page of the Guardian. Liberty aren't going to be up in arms about it. The usual people that would be, you know, penning furious columns about policing going wrong in protest will completely ignore policing going wrong in football. So we'll just shrug our shoulders and do what we've always done because we, we, we're quite comfortable in the fact that there isn't going to be any real scrutiny in how we police football. As football media, we definitely should and could be doing more to flag the varying and huge problems with football policing and lead a campaign for change. What has your take been on the press coverage around this so far? I think broadly speaking, absolutely their preferred narrative is to, you know, the perpetuation of the story about the football fan being a menace. They prefer the stories of the mass disorder um, and, you know, problem fans rather than scratching the surface just a little bit and seeing that there's a much, much broader picture there to be examined and scrutinised. I mean, ultimately, football fans reflect society, but whatever happens at football is magnified and amplified hugely, whereas if, if an equivalent event had happened in a different context, it probably wouldn't even make the headlines. Um, I mean, I, I've got a million and one bugbears, but one of them is the fact that around the larger tournaments where those on football banning orders have to surrender their passports, the police will put out press releases that will say, um, in, in our area, there's 87 people on football banning orders. These 87 people have been stopped from going abroad and causing trouble. And then the media just replicate those verbatim with lurid headlines, you know, 87 yobs prevent from shaming the nation overseas when really if they were prepared to put their journalists hat on and just do a little bit of investigating they will find that very likely the vast majority of those people on football banning orders haven't got them because they've been convicted of offence involving disorder but they've more likely got them because um, the applications on conviction for a football-related offence are automatic. And if a supporter or an individual, well, rather an individual is in court without a lawyer, then the courts will generally just rubber stamp those applications, whereas what they should be doing is uh, applying a two-part test. The first part of the test is, has an individual been convicted of a football-related offence? Obviously, the answer is going to be yes, but then they really need to analyse and decide whether or not granting the football banning order application will prevent future football-related violence and disorder. Football banning orders. It's probably something you may have heard of or read about in passing without actually realising the controversy around them. Under Section 14A of the Football Spectators Act 1989, an FBO can be applied for whenever a person is convicted of a relevant football-related offence. Section B, however alarmingly allows for applications of FBOs on complaint 
where there has been no conviction. Detailed research has flagged cases drawn up on flimsy evidence of little more than guilt by association. I think it's really important that people are fully aware of just how absolutely draconian those orders are. The 14B football banning order is an application that the police can make to the courts um, to persuade the courts that this that an individual should be banned from football to prevent future um, disorder and violence. The police can present evidence to the courts that is up to 10 years old. And I've had numerous cases where the first an individual has been made aware of this is if the police knock on the door with the paperwork or it arrives through the post and they go through the paperwork and the amount of information that the police have collected on these individuals can sometimes be startling and again as you allude to in your article um, sometimes the individual has been involved in violence and disorder there's no escaping from that but you wonder why they haven't been put through the criminal justice system as opposed to the civil process but there's a lot of applications where the police are using evidence of isolated in incidents that put together can paint a bit of a bleak picture, not necessarily of somebody that goes round wanting fights with people, but it's a bit antisocial, a bit annoying. So that there will be applications that say, in 2002, John was seen standing on his chair making gestures towards the away fans. In 2004, John was refused entry to a game for being drunk. In 2007, John was seen at the pub with known risk fans. So can you imagine, you know, A, you've got the shock of being told that you've got to go to court to defend yourself against these accusations. But the first you're hearing of it, that the police have been effectively keeping tabs on you for up to 10 years. And I think that's a really daunting and frightening prospect. And more people need to be aware of it. and More people need to be alive to the fact that, you know, they might not be involved in criminality, but if their behaviour is antisocial and they're coming to the attention of the police, then the police might well be going back to the station and writing up these notes with a view to serving a 14B banning order application on them. Um, again, you know, loads of fans have come to me with these applications. We sent them on to Football Law Associates and a lot of them have been successfully contested, which I think is just indicative of, you know, the police not, I'd say, I wouldn't say trying their luck necessarily, but I would say arguably pushing against the spirit of the legislation. Um, but in answer to your question i think the biggest problem we have melissa is not the police or the courts or the legislation is what i call the expect and accept culture among football fans i think there's definitely a mentality amongst a large number of supporters that they expect to be treated poorly and when they are they accept it whereas if they received a similar sort of treatment in another context they'd be up in arms about it. But because it's football, they just shrug their shoulders and they think, well, that's just my lot because I'm a football fan. And I think until there's a bit of a more of a concerted pushback 
things won't change and it's also not just about individual treatment it's about getting um you know look a full review of the uk football policing unit as your articles have called for it's supporters pushing for a full proper review of the outdated legislation and it, it's just for you know for them to be a bit angrier a bit more indignant and a bit more prepared to do more to support either us the football supporters association or their local supporters organization or trust to put more pressure on the authorities just to ensure an all-round better treatment it is impossible not to agree with amanda there having recently released two exclusive investigation articles published in The Independent, exploring football policing in the UK, the majority of responses I received was, well, nothing is going to change. But we have to force it to. Fans, including myself, definitely have to be doing more. But the government, the UK Football Policing Unit, and all the other powers that be cannot ignore the research done on this. Why are there obstacles to reform? How can there be? Owen West tries to answer those questions. There is a national leadership and national policy applied around the policing of football. It's applied through a unit at the Home Office called the, uh, the UK United Kingdom Football Policing Unit. And they are essentially the holders of the operational policy, the operational doctrine for policing football. And one of the hardest nuts to crack that we've experienced uh, in, in enabling in my time uh, as a serving officer and, and now retired is getting the policymakers to come up to date with the latest science, with the latest thinking, and to take an evidence-led approach because... All of the things that we put forward, Melissa, are not, you know, my view or Jeff Pearson's view or, or, or you know, just some sort of frolic of our own. All of this is evidence-based policing. You know, this is studies, scientific studies that have been rigorously, independently reviewed, that are in peer-reviewed journals. It's not made up. It's substantive evidence. And the police, in all sorts of other areas, will talk a lot about evidence-based policing, and yet... Because of that political narrative and because of the policymakers at a national level, we still have this issue where the evidence is being set aside when it comes to the policing of football fans. I think we need to be, I mean, I was in policing for, for 30 years, Melissa, and very, very little changed. Uh, there are some forces out there that are progressive that are trying to use football engagement officers, that are trying to um, work with fans to have independent advisory group from fans, to have fan oversight of some of the policing operations. So I don't want to paint the picture that every force in the United Kingdom is taking this very draconian view. There are forces out there, uh, my own West Yorkshire uh, back in the day and others that we visit when we're doing the uh, enable work, that are progressive and are forward thinking. The problem is they are held back they're held back by that political narrative. They're held back by the, 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 the worry and concern about this uh, perception of loss of control. So to answer your question, we need to get radical now, in my view. COVID and all of the issues around um, the public health risk to, to getting fans back in uh, really make it, because as you will know better than I do, a lot of clubs 
in the lower leagues are really, really struggling and we might lose them. So I think this is a moment in time and especially 33 years after Hillsborough, there's a moment in time now for, for, for us to get radical in terms of how we change this dynamic. And just on Hillsborough, if I can for a moment, I, I, it's a very personal view. I speak for nobody else other than myself when I say this. You would have thought, you would hope that of all the stakeholders in football after Hillsborough, the people pushing for reform, pushing for change, for innovation, for progress, for improvement, ought to be the police. And it saddens me at a national level when actually, uh, if you think about safe standing, uh, you know, the SGSA, the Sports Ground Safety Authority agreed with it. The FSA, the fans groups agreed with it. Safety officers agreed with it. Just about every stakeholder you can think of agreed with it, apart from the police. And that needs to change. All of these problems have persisted for decades. Owen's got first-hand experience of this. So what can be done, and sharpish, to positively influence the policing of football crowds in the UK? We do need, in my view, new national police leadership. I think the current um, head of the UK FPU, DCC, Mark Roberts, uh, and it gives me no pleasure to say it, Melissa, but he needs to go. We need a fresh start. We also need new leadership of the UK FPU, the operational lead and the senior people that work in there. Thirdly, the police watchdog, HMIC, Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, need to review football policing. I don't ever recall it being done. I can't recall in my 30 years that there was a thematic inspection uh, up and down England and Wales about how football is policed. That must include fans as part of that review and as part of that evaluation. And it must ensure that just like protest and just like any other crowd event, that the police operation is human rights compliant. I also think there needs to be a review of legislation. So you talked about uh, safe standing. You talked about um, no alcohol in view of the pitch. And I think it's time to review that entire landscape, but also to include and in your latest uh, article on this, uh, you touched upon it in, in some depth, Melissa. We need to look carefully at Section 14 football banning orders. Those are the the banning orders on complaint, where effectively, it, it, you know, you could view that as the sus laws still existing, but within football policing. So I would urge the Independent Office of Police Conduct, actually, to thematically look at the use of that power. And we almost need to disband the UK FPU and to start from scratch, to have a new agency, a new steering group that is inclusive of fans, of safety officers, to have the academic and the evidential input into the latest science around crowds and crowd psychology, to have the sports group safety authority there and potentially take this Take this unit out of the home office. You know, football policing sits within the home office, which is there around crime and disorder and prevention of crime and policing. Why not send a message and take it out of the home office, put it into culture and sport, or put it into communities and local government, but put it somewhere else that isn't, you know, inherently tied with the idea of policing and punishment and courts and everything else. So... I, th I think it will take nothing less than that radical approach to change things. And the only, the only other way to change things, uh, Melissa, and, and, and I sort of steal myself before saying this, I've said it at conferences before, but I always feel a bit apprehensive about saying it because it sounds, sounds alarmist and it makes, me, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, but 
nothing happened in the policing of protest until the death of Mr Ian Tomlinson. It took a death and a national outcry for the way that protest policing uh, was, was to be reviewed. And the change in protest policing was seismic. There was a, a report issued there called Adapting to Protest, which is probably one of the most important landmark reports that the HMIC have ever put out in policing. But my point is, none of that would have happened if there hadn't been a death. And so what gravely concerns me is that it may take a death of a football fan um, or somebody involved around the game, at a game, or, or, or in that sort of environment, it might take another Ian Tomlinson-type incident for government, for the police national leadership, for the key stakeholders in this to finally realise that change is needed in the way that we police football in the UK. That is actually jarring. It's quite difficult to digest. Why is it difficult? It's difficult because 30-odd years and we haven't seen much in terms of change in football policing. We haven't seen a change in legislation. We still have all the safety issues around not allowing fans to have a drink inside of the pitch. And again, you, you know, your, your article uh, covered pieces from Jeff Pearson, who was much, much more qualified than I am to talk about that. But um, in relation to that, you, you know, there is evidence that that particular measure causes issues it causes people to preload drink it causes congestion and um you know heavy heavy crowds around concourses at half time none of that has been reviewed since it came in safe standing there is evidence to suggest that that might help with um crowd collapse issues in grounds and yet we don't seem to be getting much further forward with that so the pattern that emerges here is there is compelling proper, if I can use that word, evidence that's out there about things we might be able to do that might make the game safer, that might help build better relationships between football fans and police. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
WrestleMe is a show where two men watch every WrestleMania from 1 to 37, unpicking the multicolored threads that tie it all together. I think it's slightly something to do with the fact that Americans don't really like cell phones, do they? Right. I think they've all got basic ones, <laughs> basically. <laughs> That's a big shout. It is a big shout, but I mean, there is something funny about it, like text messaging never took off in the States. What? I'm d- come on now. Never been big. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you're a lapsed fan or someone who doesn't give a flying laureate about it, there's something for everyone. If you can get a crowd to boo you for kicking a fabulous ladder. Fabulous ladder. And the crowd are booing. Yeah. I get just, off that lovely ladder we've just learned about. It's a beautiful polysexual ladder. It's a, it's a beautiful Hyundai shabby yeah. chic creation. If you climb up to it, ecstasy can be found at the top. <laughs> Listen via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. WrestleMe is a Stakano production. It's unthinkable that it might take the death of a football fan or someone working in a stadium to force change on this issue, despite the mounting studies that fans are not a public disorder threat, and the legislation based on this misperception is harmful rather than helpful. But what does the actual evidence tell us about the Control of Alcohol Act, football banning orders, safe standing, and football policing in general? Jeff Pearson is one of the leading experts on these very topics. Actually, if we look at the evidence about alcohol consumption and, um, and football fan behaviour, and we have a lot of really good evidence on this, we've got a lot of really strong ethnographic studies going back through the 90s um, to the modern day, those basically tell you that football, there's a very strong subculture of football fans, particularly away fans, that like to have a drink. They like to get drunk. It is part of their um, expression of their identity as football fans. If those fans can't drink inside the pitch, what do they do? Well, they will drink before they go into the match. That means they're more likely to arrive later than if they would be allowed to drink inside of the pitch. It also means that they're more likely to try and cram drinks down the throats at half time in the concourse where they are allowed to drink, which creates congestion, it creates uh, clustering, it potentially can create disorder as well because it's, those spaces are very difficult to police. And if we imagine a situation where football fans were allowed to drink within sight of their, within sight of the pitch, what could that do to football fan culture? Well. It would mean for a start that some fans would go into the grounds earlier and they'd have a drink with their friends and they'd watch the teams warm up, for example. They'd watch pre-match entertainment. Um, yeah, well, that's what happens at other sports. Um, what would happen at half-time? Well, fans would be able to get a drink and they'd be able to take it back to their seats and you wouldn't get that sort of congestion and sometimes disorder that we see in those concourses, which can become very unsafe places. Um, And we know from the research that's been carried out into alcohol consumption and and football fan behaviour that crushes at turnstiles, on stairways, in um, concourses, are caused by the clash between the legislation and between how English football fans behave particularly when they're traveling to matches away from home Um, and you know a a, a different world is possible Uh, we need to follow the evidence we need to think about what laws work and what laws don't and I'm not suggesting that we need to 
completely abolish the Sporting Events Control of Alcohol Act, but I'm suggesting that there are two provisions in there, that relating to drinking within sight of the pitch and that relating to alcohol on um, chartered football specials going to matches. Those two provisions, they have no impact that is positive upon public order whatsoever and actually they make matters worse both for the fans and for the police. Talk us through your studies on football banning orders. So originally football banning orders were introduced by the 1986 Public Order Act Uh, and originally what they said was if you're convicted of an offence of football related violence or disorder, so at a match or on a journey to or from a match, then you would be banned from attending matches. Now that's a perfectly sensible approach Um, and there is anecdotal evidence from both fans and police to suggest that those banning orders had an impact upon the levels of the more serious violence which started to diminish around the late 1980s and into the early 1990s. So I have no problems whatsoever with banning somebody that's committed an offence of violence or disorder at a football match um, from attending that match. I think that's perfectly sensible. I think it's perfectly sensible you have conditions preventing them from going in pubs around the matches and to the train stations and stuff like that. However, since the late 1980s, there has been a legislative creep and these football banning orders have turned into what myself and Professor Mark James have called super banning orders in that the conditions attached to them are more serious. So if you get a football banning order, you will now be banned for a minimum of three years whatever you've done, um, and you will have standard conditions imposed on you, which will include exclusion zones around town centres, around football stadiums, and you will have to hand over your passport whenever uh, relevant teams are playing abroad. So these are incredibly restrictive conditions, um, which last for a minimum of of three years. Um, Really, you should only be imposing those restrictions on football fans if you know that those restrictions work, if you know that football banning orders work. And unfortunately, we don't actually have any evidence at all to suggest that football banning orders work. Now, that's not to suggest that football banning orders on complaint don't. I think it's likely that football, sorry, that football banning orders following conviction of an offensive violence or disorder don't work. I think they probably do work, but I would like to see some evidence pointing that out. Um, When it comes to football banning orders impact upon disorder abroad involving English supporters, there is no evidence at all that these work. Because if you look at the type of England fan that gets involved in mass disorder abroad, for example at Marseille in 1998 and 2016 or at Charlwa in 2000, um, these are fans that aren't known to the police. So they would never have football banning orders imposed on them in the first place. So football banning orders, whether we have them or not, are completely incidental to whether disorder takes place abroad involving English fans. The effects of football banning orders have been so pronounced that despite asking countless fans who have received one in the past to speak about it, they have declined. One said, Sorry, I just want to put it behind me. It was a horrible experience for myself my wife and my kids to endure. And another response was, I do not want to give the police a reason to come after me again. They didn't even need a reason the last time. 
Amanda has worked through some of these cases and understands why the victims of unjust FBOs decline to speak. For anybody ending up in the criminal justice system or being arrested or held in a police cell, it's going to be a traumatic and unsettling experience. But I think the, the, the biggest problem with football, Melissa, is that, as you've touched on in your articles, there's a lot of legislation that will affect the football fan that won't affect anybody else, sports fan or, you know, just somebody out, out on a Friday night who might run into a bit of bother. The legislation, just digressing slightly, is also misused, in my view, which means a lot of people end up in the criminal justice system that shouldn't be there. I think a prime example of that is the laws around missile throwing, obviously brought in at a time when, uh, you know, that there was disorder and your missiles were coins or lighters or keys, you know, objects that generally could do somebody real damage if make contact but over the years we've seen people arrested for missile throwing and those missiles have been sweets empty coffee cups small plastic bottles of water and in one notorious case a pair of fancy dress trousers um, luckily that the latter case was dropped but you know I think we need to ask ourselves and, and I've made this point loads of times on Twitter was the legislation really designed to put somebody through the criminal justice system for throwing to the floor a coffee cup or empty bottle of water that has done no damage it hasn't hurt anybody, it hasn't caused any damage to a seat or anything else. And I think the answer to that has to be a resounding no. And I think the question has to be, why are the police arresting people for those offences and really abusing the spirit of the legislation? Now, the argument might be, well, there aren't that many people which statistically is absolutely true, but also that's absolutely no consolation for the person that is arrested, um, interviewed by the police, taken to court, and with the criminal justice system being in meltdown, it's not just one court appearance a few weeks after the original offence, it can be several court appearances over a lengthy period and or a very long wait for court. A lot of the people I deal with... Um, Thankfully, they've heard of me and they know that we've got a brilliant firm of solicitors that we can refer supporters to for initial free legal advice. But sadly, there's many more people that aren't aware of the service that we provide that maybe can't afford um, legal fees. They think they're not going to get legal aid. So a lot of people, Melissa, turn up to court to plead guilty to get the case over with. Now, they may or may not be guilty. I don't know. I'm not here to judge. But can you imagine being in a situation where you're feeling so desperate, you, you turn up at the magistrate's court and plead guilty to an offence that you might not even be guilty of just to get it over and done with? Or you might be guilty, but a lawyer could argue mitigation for you and more importantly help you avoid that football banning order but again people don't ordinarily don't often get lawyers to help them which is why we provide such a brilliant service and there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that thanks to um, football or associates there's a lot of people out there that now don't have criminal records that would have done without our service there is some hope for change out there, but we all have to come together to force an almighty reform of football policing, which should actually help reduce costs and redirect officers to more crucial services like domestic abuse. There are 
glimmers of hope out there. There are forces, I'm not going to name them, there are forces that are progressive. There are forces that want to change, that feel the frustration that at that policy level nationally they are being held back. There are forces that come together as progressive forces when we have our Enable conferences and other things that talk about what they might be uh, uh, able to do. So there is appetite out there among some police commanders. There is appetite out there uh, among some um, police spotters and evidence gatherers and people like that that do want to see change. The problem is there is this overhanging threat of, well, what if we're criticised for it? What if we get into trouble with the National Policy Unit? What if um, you know this is viewed as a, a as a soft option? And it's, it's very it's incredibly difficult for the police. You know, back in the day in West Yorkshire, we were piloting. Uh, using football engagement officers, liaison officers, and, and when one of the local newspapers came in and um, and did quite a, you know a, an extensive feature looking at the issues, talking to myself, talking to the academics that were involved, and when that was written up, the headline was effectively you know police go pink and fluffy, and as soon as a, a chief constable or or a you know police commander sees that sort of headline, it, you know, it's it's. It's, you can imagine why you know people are reluctant to go in there unless they're going to be fully supported. And in my force at the time, when I was struggling to get my peers and some of my uh, colleagues to come with me, I had to effectively get them. Uh, the chief constable at the time, and bless her, she did a you know. D. Collins came out, and we brought everybody together in that force that was involved in football policing. And it took the chief constable to say, "Get behind this." I'm not really interested what the National Policy Unit say. This is my force. This is how we will police football fans in this area and get behind it. But it took that level of seniority to get the change and start to get people to wake up to a new way of doing things. When I was in serving in West Yorkshire, I, I studied this uh, quite deeply and I looked at the whole of the policing deployment in West Yorkshire. So that's Leeds, Huddersfield, Bradford City. Uh, over three years and mind-bogglingly over that three years when you include every single police officer in whatever role they've been at we put as a force over 18,000 officers to football policing over three seasons now just imagine what you could do with county lines with vulnerability with domestic abuse with 18,000 officers and far too much police resource is being spent and put into football policing and when we go up and down the country we see it all the time we see a systematic over resourcing of policing that's built on that historic view of reputation rather than behavior that's built on uh, the sense that we have to have overriding control over this uh, and, and we see very poor intelligence and therefore risk assessments that are not very robust, that are feeding this appetite to have more and more cops to deal with whatever the issues are. I am a football fan. You, listening in right now, are also a football fan. I am not a public disorder threat. I do not want to be viewed as one anymore. I'm sure neither do you. So let's all play our part in lifting football policing out of the shadows of a tainted past into the reality of the here and now. 
Let's force football policing to be rooted in human rights. Let's push for a removal of those bad, rushed, panicked laws governing our game. We may not be able to attend football matches as supporters now, but when we do, we shouldn't have to do so under the banner of being a problem to solve. Between the Lines is a Stakhanov production, written and narrated by me, Melissa Reddy. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Our assistant producer is Natalie Wilson. The executive producers are John Teague and Luke Aaron Moore. Sound design and mixing is by Tom Wally. All music comes courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.